Hey everyone, welcome to the Bold Moves Only podcast. For today's episode, I spoke with Tom Steyer, who you may know from his 2020 presidential campaign, which we do discuss, but we also go in depth into the current climate crisis. He has contributed a lot to the fight against climate change for quite some time. Our homes are both in San Francisco, which literally looked like hell the other day due to the climate fires, not wildfires, climate fires. We also go into some of his other initiatives, as well as some other structural changes that need to happen in America. Overall, it was a very motivating and inspiring conversation. So let's just get into it. Thanks, Tom, for joining the Bull Moves Only podcast. Jason, it's great to be here with you. So you founded a hedge fund, Fairlawn Capital. You made an immense fortune, and about 10 years ago, you and your wife made a giving pledge, committing to dedicate the majority of your wealth to giving back. What led you to making that decision, and were there any significant moments that you can recall that motivated you to do that? Well, Jason, the, the, the funny thing about the giving pledge is I did it, and Kat did it to support Warren Buffett and Bill and Melinda Gates as a statement that the luckiest, most fortunate Americans are part of America, are part of the American people, that we would never want to, nor could we ever separate ourselves from everybody else, including people who are really struggling, that we perceive our good fortune to have been built on the hard work, sacrifice of people for hundreds of years, most of them poor. Most of them, you know, never saw any of the benefits of the sacrifices and hard work that they put in. And just a statement that we as a society are bound together in the most fundamental and important ways and completely depend on each other. And if you've been lucky enough to do really well, just be aware it wasn't you. And so we wanted to make that statement. But having said that, we'd always intended to do it. You know, it's, it's funny because as somebody who spent more than, gosh, I think more than 30 years in the private sector, I never thought that life was about money. I never thought it was about earning money or having money. And so the idea of being connected to everybody else, to feeling mutual responsibility for each other, feeling like the American experiment is about everybody moving up together is something that I've known since I was a little boy. And, you know, is something that I take super seriously. And so that statement was just a chance to support some other people who were trying to lead a movement to make that point on a broad scale. And I was very happy to support them. And you say you've always felt this way, but you know, when I was younger, I thought that the only way that I could make a significant amount of impact was if I made a lot of money and use that money to support causes that I believed in. Like, I absolutely, I absolutely don't believe that anymore. But, you know, I still know quite a few people who have that kind of mindset. So I'm kind of wondering, like, what your stance is on that. I don't believe that for a second. Look, I think the people who have made the most difference 
in our history are the people who've been able to reimagine the future and the, what it means to be a person and to be an American and what we're aiming for in the future and have been able to explain that vision, share that vision and convince people to come along. So whoever your, your favorite American hero is, think back to what, who they are and they're people who created that vision, you know, whether it's, you know, you can run down the list of people's favorite historic Americans, but they're people who reimagined the world for, and that's true across, you know, if you look at Nelson Mandela, he reimagined what it meant to be a South African. He reimagined how South Africans could relate to each other. It's true, you know, Gandhi, he reimagined what it was to be an Indian. He reimagined what it was to be a person. He reimagined how government is responsible and does relate to its citizens, you know, is a great effort of brilliance in my mind and, you know, moral clarity and moral brilliance. And that to me is the, the most enduring gift that any human being can make to his or her society is to explain in a new way that puts everybody forward in a, in a more positive vein. And that's the real contribution. Definitely. And I imagine that you learned a lot during your presidential bid. So I'm wondering like, what were some of your biggest takeaways from your campaign? I mean, Jason, there are two really big takeaways. One is you get a chance to meet people every single day, very personally. You get a chance to talk face to face with people from different parts of the country, different backgrounds, different races, genders, ethnicities, sexual orientations, however you want to define the beautiful diversity of America, you get to see it in person. And that was one of the great religious experiences of my life. It's just so wonderful. And the people were so positive, compassionate, brave, smart. It was so reassuring and you know, I was talking about connection to other Americans. It was a chance to have an emotional, personal, direct connection with people every single day and learn from them and see how hard they work and how good they are. And that was just an overwhelmingly positive experience. And the other thing I got to see was how divorced elite America really is from the people around the country that the opinion makers and the, you know, the, the, the people in charge are often so far removed from the day-to-day -day life of people who are nurses or teachers or farm workers. You know, it's, it, it's the, the two worlds almost live, you know, separately. And so that was a huge wake-up call to me because I felt like I'd been traveling at that point for probably eight years, pretty full time doing political organizing and doing the same kinds of things you do in a campaign, but not at such a feverish pitch. And so, it, but this time I got to see how the press and the, you know, kind of official opinion makers and commentators reacted. And I was actually surprised at how much spin they were putting on what I could see real time was going on in the country and what got emphasized and what got completely ignored. And it was, you know, that was my second big takeaway was like, wow, there's a big world out there, <laughs> you know, 
the stories that are told about it aren't necessarily the what's really going on. And kind of talking about that separation. So we have in America an immense wealth gap. And even before your presidential campaign, you advocated for a wealth tax. Do you believe that this is the best way to address the growing wealth inequality? Look, I know that the people talk mostly about income inequality, and it is, you know, extreme and undemocratic and in my mind, completely unsustainable. But the inequality in wealth is so much greater and so vast that it's almost hard to contemplate. It's hard to believe how much a very few people own compared to how little so many people have. And so my point about a wealth tax was, A, it's a way of redressing inequity, but also that that inequity has been supported and created by unjust laws. So whether you intended to participate in it or not, our laws supported it. And so I was saying in effect, this is a way not of taking money from people to redistribute. This was a way of undoing a system that unfairly distributed in the first place. And I feel as if, you know, I understand, I knew when I said that, that I would be offending people, you know, and I can promise you, they've expressed to me how offended they really were at the idea that, you know, anybody earned their money, but them by the sweat of their brow. But, you know, I think if you think back to my answer to your first question, Jason, which was, what did I think about the giving pledge? What I said was, anyone succeeding in America today is living off the sacrifice and the hard work and the sweat and sometimes the gross injustice and cruelty that Americans have put up with and given for hundreds of years. We all owe those people, the people who went out and fought and died, the people who were enslaved and worked, the people who worked in subhuman conditions for a pittance starting you know, at very, very early ages, the people who suffered to support our country, to build our country, and who really never reaped any benefit from it that people today get. And so anyone who thinks they created that themselves is you know, deeply misguided and in my mind, you know, <laughs> desperately self-absorbed. And you're, so you currently live in San Francisco and this is another version of a wealth tax, but um, I'm wondering what you think of Prop C, which- um, Which is Prop C. So Prop C is the gross receipts tax for homelessness services from 2018. And it actually just became um, San Francisco law after the Supreme Court declined to hear the challenge. Um, so basically, it's a wealth tax on businesses making over $50 million, and the money will go towards combating the homelessness crisis. And it just it literally just became San Francisco law. Well, we obviously have a huge homelessness problem. And, you know, we obviously have a society that is grossly inequitable. So I remember this vaguely. Is this the one that Mark Benioff was pushing? Yeah, exactly. And I, I believe I supported it back then. And I believe I would support it now. I don't remember all the details of it, Jason. But we're in a situation in California, clearly. We have many too few housing units, specifically millions too few affordable housing units. And you see the pain of that most cruelly in the homelessness crisis, but you see it throughout society. And so I think it's, 
It's something that we as a society have to address, have got to deal with and, you know, walk the streets of San Francisco and you'll agree. Yeah, definitely. I'm, I'm really excited. I'm, I'm, I think I saw that it just opened like upwards of $400 million. Um, but one thing about your presidential campaign that resonated with me and something that I think about a lot is, that, as you say, the corporate stranglehold on our government. And I agree that our government can't be completely fair and work for those they should be working for, the American people, when they have special interests every time they go to vote. What is the best route towards fixing this issue? You know, it's campaign finance reform. Honestly, goodness. I mean, what happened with Citizens United, what we're seeing, look, in California, we're experiencing this horrible climate-related fire season. And that means we've burned up, halfway through climate fire season, we've burned up more acres than we've ever burned before. We've burned up acreage that's the equivalent of the state of Connecticut so far. Yeah. You know, we have air that is unhealthy or very unhealthy virtually all over the state. We're in the middle of a huge climate-induced crisis. And that's a crisis which the federal government has never, ever been willing to address. And it's hard to separate that huge governmental failure from the fossil fuel donations made overwhelmingly to Republicans. And so as somebody whose state is on fire, who's being advised not to go outside, who's being told, this is, just get over yourself, this is going to happen every year. My interest, it, no, that's not right. That's just not right. We have the technology to solve this. We have the ability to move to a clean energy economy. It will create jobs, millions of them, good paying middle-class union jobs. We can clean up the air and water while we do it, particularly in underserved black and brown communities where the really bad asthma is, where the water is that you can't drink. We can do this. So you have to ask, why have we chosen not to do this? I've been fighting this fight for a long time. It took me a while to figure out, we know how to do this and there's nothing that's not good about it, except it's gonna hurt the status quo. Except that people who are used to make money from fossil fuels think that they're not going to and they're right. And, but the point is, why should their profits mean that 320 million Americans should be put at risk, that their health should be at risk, that their lives should be put at risk and their future should be put at risk. When in fact, going to a clean energy economy is better economically, it's better from a health standpoint, it's the right thing to do. And oh, by the way, we're not endangering every one of us. And, and what exactly does that green economy look like? Well, I think, you know, right now, the, what I would do is point you to the Biden climate plan, which involves spending $4 trillion in the first, $2 trillion in the first four years. Boy, I keep missing up, maxing up those numbers. $2 trillion in the first four years, basically rebuilding the infrastructure, rail, um, charging stations, rebuilding buildings, weatherizing houses. But, you know, it's also putting in rules that we will be 100% clean electricity generation in 15 years. 100%. That we will be net carbon neutral by 2050. It's basically saying we're going to spend a lot of money. The private sector is going to spend a lot of money. 
and together we're going to first determine that we're going to clean up our own country and then go international and lead the rest of the world to do the same. We don't really have a choice, Jason. I mean, you're, you said you're 23 years old. Yeah. Okay. This is something you're going to have to deal with. I hate to say it, but every day till the day you die or until we fix it. And so it, this is not a situation where delay doesn't cost everything. Every day we delay is an expensive day. This right. is an urgent issue that gets worse every single day. I look every single day at the parts per million, the parts of CO2 per million in the atmosphere, and it's directly related to temperature. It's directly related to climate change, and it tells us where we're going. And you know, we are still on the same dangerous trajectory we've been on. And the UN has said we have nine years to change it and reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 50% in the next nine years. Wow. Yeah. I mean, don't, don't you think we need to start shifting the narrative? I mean, I feel like, you know, it's always, we need to save the planet for our future generations. We need to save the, everything. But it's, you know, we need to save the planet now. We are on fire now. We are drowning now. I mean, you know, living in San Francisco, you know, people keep saying to me, isn't this just a Washington, Oregon, California story? It's like, no, there is a hurricane hitting Louisiana and Mississippi today. Last month, there was a hurricane hitting Iowa. You know, we are having climate related disasters all over this country in every single state. Yeah, and it's hard to believe that Australia was literally on fire less than a year ago. <laughs> but you know what? Fire season is coming up for Australia because they're in the Southern Hemisphere. Right. So our fire season, this extraordinary historic fire season has followed the highest temperatures ever seen in California, maybe the highest temperature ever recorded in human history. And you're from California, San Luis Obispo was 120 degrees. Can you believe that? San Luis Obispo for non-Californians is on the ocean. It's a Mediterranean climate with a college town in it. It was 120 degrees. That's, you know, to me, I can believe Phoenix could be 120 degrees, not San Luis Obispo. Yeah, I mean, I was just talking to it with my friends how, you know, we're still pretty young and things have changed drastically in our lifetime. So, you know, I've been working on this for a long time. I, it's kind of, I'm hoping that the way that change happens in this is the way that Hemingway describes change happening slowly and then all at once. And it's kind of like you build the base for change, you build the base for change. It may take a really long time. It has taken a really long time. But now, all at once, we need to determine we're in an emergency. There's no more time to waste. We don't have a day to waste. We got to start acting right now in a very progressive, aggressive way. And it will be good for us in every way. And can you talk about some of the climate initiatives that you have started or um, participated in? Well, you know, I've done, I, when I originally got into this, Jason, sitting around the, the, the kitchen table with my family, our kids, you know, we decided 15 years ago, this is the thing that the government won't deal with for some reason. So we should work on it. And I thought 
it's a technology thing. So we basically tried to fund technology, clean energy technology, so that it would be possible to move. And then I thought, well, we can move, but it must be people don't understand that we can move. So together in a completely nonpartisan way with Republicans, with business people, with independents, we funded a series of studies to show it creates jobs net, they're better paid jobs net, it's better health. You know, every single way we could show that on an every way you can think of this argument that it destroys jobs isn't a lie. That in fact, it's a job creator and a health creator in addition to dealing with a huge crisis. And then I realized, no, they know the technology is there. They know it's a win-win-win for Americans. It's just politically, it's not in their interest. So they're going to sacrifice us all because it's not in their personal political interest. They're playing politics with American lives. And so I thought, okay. And then I started, ran, co-chaired, you know, three props in California, three other props around the country pushing for clean energy. We got them all. You know, we pushed through, you know, 50% clean energy by 2030 in three states. We pushed through closing a, a tax loophole and using it to fix up public schools for climate. We stopped oil companies head to head. You know, we pushed really hard on that. Also started the largest youth voter mobilization organization in American history, Next Gen, to say, this is a political problem. Young people get it. Young people don't vote. If young people realize the power in their hands, 18 to 35 year olds, they can change everything. Let's make sure they are engaged and understand how important they are and how important their voice is when they vote together. So that's another thing we've done. We've raised money through what you refer to along with the League of Conservation Voters and the Natural Resources Defense Council. We've raised money through Give Green so that when people make their political contributions, it's not an anonymous contribution from someone you don't know named Jason Nemirovsky. It's through Give Green. That means I'm giving it so that you will be a climate champion, so that you will be an environmental champion. So you'll be an environmental justice champion and stand up for the black and brown communities around this country where we've systematically focused and concentrated our toxins and our pollutants. And so, you know, we honestly, Jason, I've been doing this long enough and I have enough ideas, unfortunately, that we've been doing a lot of different things and continue to because, you know, I was always scared we'd get to the point we are at right now, that we'd have the state on fire with people dying, people losing their homes, and we wouldn't have acted. And, and it's like, we need, you know, this is a leadership question. I said to you, the people who made the biggest contributions were the people who were able to reimagine the world and then explain it to people and bring them along. And that's really what we need to do as a group now. I don't think it's going to be a single person. I think that a group of people are going to have to repaint this picture of who we are and what we can be and what we have to be in order to save ourselves. And so you mentioned one of the organizations that you started, Next Gen, um, which is, you know, as you said, a grassroots organization to help mobilize young voters. But what are you doing in this current voting climate where voting by mail is more crucial than ever in the wake of the coronavirus pandemic? Well, you know, the funny thing is, Jason, it's not just that. 
voting by mail is important. Also, you can't do person-to-person -person canvassing. You know, NextGen in 2018 had our best impact ever. We were on, over, we were on 420 college campuses in 11 swing states. We thought we had an incredible impact on turnout. I could show you that we thought that we had a huge impact on turnout and on races. On March 10 of this year, we went 100%, you know, virtual. We, we're on zero campuses right now. None of the campuses are open anyway. It's gonna be in every single one of the states we're in there's vote by mail. And we believe that between those two things, between being 100% online and the fact that we're going to be able to go vote by mail, that this is going to be the most successful, impactful canvas we've ever had. We believe that 18 to 35 turnout is going to be a record. We believe that you guys are going to change everything in a progressive, positive way. And so I'm extremely optimistic that people your age understand their lives are at stake. That's, you know, I said, you're going to be dealing with this the rest of your life. If your future life is at stake on November 3rd. And if we don't make a change at the top, flip the Senate, put ourselves in a position for progressive action, not just on climate, but on racial justice, you know, on dealing with this pandemic, in dealing with the deep-seated economic injustices. I mean, we've got racial and economic and environmental injustice. We're going to have to, and I think we've got the right guy. I think if you look at what Joe Biden is standing up for, he's addressing these issues in a progressive and systematic fashion. He made a big climate speech today. He's got a really progressive climate plan. You know, I think we're in a place where people in your generation are paying attention, will pay attention, are gonna show up in historic levels. I think we're gonna get a different outcome than people understand. Are there any propositions people should pay particularly close attention to in California or any states as well? You know, there are, and you know, there's a bunch of props out there, you know, more than I would care to uh, go into all of them. I mean, affirmative action is, is, is on the ballot this year. You know, there is ending cash bail is on the ballot. Split role of Prop 13, making commercial buildings pay taxes based on their current valuations is on the ballot this year. So there's a lot of significant things on the ballot this year. And, you know, I'm sure NextGen will put out a, you know, recommendation because at this point, the ballots are so complicated, as you know, you really need trusted, you need trusted people to do the research and to explain, you know, what's at stake and make recommendations. And we'll definitely do that. Okay. So everyone look out for that. Um, one particular bill that you have endorsed, um, which was uh, legislation sponsored by Representative Sheila Jackson Lee, H.R. 40, that would fund a committee to explore whether Black Americans should receive reparations for slavery. So this was also part of your agenda for your 2020 campaign. But can you talk about why you support this and like what exactly this would look like if it were to pass? You know, I think I was talking about racial and economic and environmental injustice. And there is no historic injustice in America greater than the enslavement of Africans 400 years ago. And that is something which Americans as a group don't really know enough about, don't understand how it continued through Jim Crow, through mass incarceration, don't really understand really how the system 
of finance and laws and zoning reinforced the injustice. And so the first thing that HR 40 does is insist on a examination and retelling of the American story. And then a consideration of how to repay the damage that's been done so that we can move on together. Because this is at the heart, this story of injustice is at the heart of the American story. And for us to come together as a people to overcome that past, we first have to tell the true story, reimagine the country and aspire to be the country we've always said we were. And that involves repairing damage that was unquestionably done. You know, the fact that there has been no official national apology for the slavery that was written into our founding documents still is something that I find hard to swallow. And I think we're gonna to have to get to a place where we go through that process so that together we can really move on together and heal in a real fashion and create the country that we wanna have, which is a just country on a racial basis and an environmental basis and an economic basis. Representative Jackson Lee has really done, she's continued the work that started in 1990, but she's really done an exceptionally good job of making this happen. And she has 150 co-sponsors in the House of Representatives. So it's not, you know, this is something that has real support. And, you know, I think we get into a new, uh, administration, a new Senate, I really think this is something that can happen. That's awesome. I, I did not know it had that many uh, sponsors. Um, so last question, something that I ask everyone, what advice would you give to someone who wants to make an impact, but doesn't know where to start? You know, Jason, my suggestion is to start at the grassroots. You know, I really believe that having the face-to-face, person-to-person contact with people who are not political people, who are American citizens, is the way you learn the most. It's the way you get a real feel for how people react and think. It's a wonderful experience. I mean, I'm not saying eat your gruel, do something that's not valuable, fun, and really meaningful. It is all those things. And I think it is also the foundation for anyone who really wants to make decisions on behalf of other people. First thing I'd say is know the people, for goodness sakes, don't assume that other people share your reactions, feelings, background. You know, the, it's, it's incredibly educational to see where someone from a different place, how they see the same set of facts and to understand they're smart and they're thoughtful and they care about other people and they have a completely different perspective. So it's a great chance to listen and learn so that in the future, when you make decisions, they're so much more grounded in the reality of our, of our society. I, I actually just had my first day of school at the Graduate Institute of Geneva and it's pretty mind blowing. Every other person is from a new country and all these people are just incredibly brilliant and just being able to like have all those different perspectives. I'm, I'm, I'm super excited. So yeah, that's exactly <laughs> the point. Getting out and meeting people is really what grassroots is about. And then realizing how great they are. It's, it's really the way to go. Well, 
Thank you again so much for taking the time to be on the Bold Moves Only podcast. Jason, knock them dead. I hope to see you back in San Francisco soon. I really hope I can come back soon. <laughs> you do. <laughs> Thanks again to Tom and thanks to you all for listening. Make sure you subscribe because we're going to continue having some really awesome people on the pod. Have a great day and let's be bold.